The United States continues to serve as the greatest great power, the most powerful country in the world, and that is a good thing. The hegemony of the United States in the world provides peace and prosperity not only to Americans, but to much of the world. However, hegemony doesn't come without a cost. It can be very expensive for the United States to act as a unilateral power. However, there are examples of successful hegemons in the past that have relied on allies to supplement and strengthen their own power. Thus, we could think about the United States, even as it faces great power competition, as developing a network and series of alliances that could help strengthen U.S. power and influence around the globe. So what might this alliance-based strategy look like? What are the benefits and what are the potential costs that might come from relying on our allies for specific things in terms of American security? I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. Welcome inside the Blind Politics Studios here at Regent University in sunny Virginia Beach, Virginia. I'm Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government, and this is Blind Politics. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us on American One. That's American the number one a provider of top-notch conservative and center-right podcasts on politics, culture, sports, and everything in between. So, wanted to do a little bit more of a deep dive into international relations and the position of the United States. This isn't the first episode we've done on IR theory and, and international relations, the position of the United States. But in this one, I wanted to focus in a little bit more on strategically how the United States can benefit from its system of alliances around the world. War is expensive, and great power war is the most expensive of all. The conflict between Russia and Ukraine should have brought that home to us by now, and certainly we can look at just the, the sheer cost economically in terms of human lives and human suffering, both in the immediate area where the war is happening and even around the world due to things like the food crisis, okay? And so the thing about the United States and, and American power is that the more powerful the United States is or appears to be, the less likely there is to be great power war and great power conflict. That doesn't mean that the United States, just by being a powerful country, can prevent all conflict and all war. But it does mean that the larger conflicts, right, the more serious uh, wars, that are bringing in multiple countries that have the potential to cause high costs globally in terms of human suffering and also economically. Get tamped down if the United States is seen as or is in fact a much more powerful country. Now, on the flip side, as the United States is perceived to be weaker, great power war becomes more likely. I've argued in the audio podcast in the past, and I would argue again, that absent the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which happened in fairly humili humiliating fashion, 
and created a perception of weakness both among America's allies and her enemies, Putin may not have actually taken there to be a green light for him to invade his neighbor. And let's keep in mind, the goal that Putin set himself with the invasion of Ukraine was nothing more or less than the complete annexation of that neighboring country, erasing the boundaries that had been in place since the collapse of the Soviet Union and restoring Ukraine to what Putin and Russian nationalists believe to be its rightful place as part of the Russian Empire. This would be a significant force majeure. Um, the first major revision of borders in Europe by violence since World War II. Borders in Europe had, of course, been revised in the past, but that was by the collapse of the Soviet Union. So this is a significant uh, impact of a perception of American weakness. American decline is a choice. It's not a requirement. So what would it look like to make a different choice? And particularly, what would that look like when we do have many challenges that face us as a country, not least of which is the national debt, which could make it difficult for us to go it alone in terms of projecting power? Well, the obvious answer is to build a system of global alliances, find countries that share our goals and values in a specific area and work with them to build them up so that they can not only provide for their own security, but protect the order of things that has been put in place by the United States, more or less, and that benefits not only the world as a whole, but in particular, the United States itself. So what's the, what are the points that might sort of draw us into alliance with other countries? Well, generally speaking, they fall into two categories, values and interests. And so the alliance is going to be particularly strong and valuable where those values and interests coincide. An obvious example of the coinciding of values and interests is NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, the US's longest standing alliance, an alliance that includes most of the European democracies at this point, not all, but most, and that also has a compelling interest, particularly compelling now, in seeing that Russia does not try to extend its hegemony into Eastern Europe. Right? NATO is a correlation of values and interests. Another alliance is the emerging Australia, UK, US, or AUKUS alliance that, if you add Japan into it, is sometimes known as the Quad. And there's, there's kind of some possibility that India ends up as part of that alliance as well. These are all countries that are democratic, that have democratic systems, that includes India as well. And they have a compelling interest in checking the expansion of China. That is a pretty substantial alliance if you think about it in terms of the military capacities of Australia, the UK, the United States, the developing capacities of India, and if there is in fact a revision of the Japanese constitution, which that would be a conversation that, that might happen at some point on this podcast as well, the Japanese self-defense forces, if they're able to take a more proactive role, could also be significant. It's worth keeping in mind that South Korea and Taiwan are already U.S. allies. So you can see the emergence of an alliance system in Eastern Europe or Eastern Asia and also to a certain extent South Asia going all the way down to Australia that could contain China. There are a couple pieces missing from that alliance that we might want to cultivate closer relationships with with a couple of countries. The one that jumps out right off the bat is Indonesia. Indonesia is the world's largest Muslim country. 
It is a democracy that has experienced a series of consecutive peaceful transfers of power from one president to the next. And it certainly has a compelling interest in not having China dominated economically, politically, etc. Right? So Indonesia is another key potential ally. Vietnam doesn't have as much of a convergence of values. Vietnam is not a democratic country, but it certainly has a convergence of interests in that the Vietnamese government, uh, while they're ostensibly communist, is really mostly interested in not being swallowed up by China. Okay, so you can start to see how this alliance system might emerge. Non-interventionists in particular tend to be very skeptical of alliances. And we'll ask questions like, how does the U.S. actually benefit from having all of these allies? Doesn't it just incur costs on us as Americans because we have to provide for the security of all of these other countries and we don't really get that much in return? Well, I would propose a couple of counterexamples to that. Number one, of course, is Ukraine. Ukraine is not formally part of the NATO alliance, but has an informal alliance with the United States and with the Western European countries and, and even many of the Eastern European countries. And this alliance for the United States is laid out in the Budapest Memorandum, in which the Ukrainian government at the time gave up its nuclear weapons in exchange for a guarantee of its territorial integrity. The United States has a treaty that says that we will protect the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And so the United States is in a position where actually great power competition is happening. Okay? Russia is framing its war on Ukraine as redressing the balance and you know, restoring Russia to its rightful place. Who destroyed Russia's rightful place? Who took them out of the rightful pl place in the mind of the Russian nationalists? The West, namely the United States. Okay? They are portraying and have been since the beginning are portraying the war in Ukraine as a proxy war against the United States. So it's not particularly surprising that we might view it in kind. We might also view it as a proxy war. And the United States has been very active in doing so. And in fact, the United States has provided and is continuing to provide and hopefully will continue to provide weapons to Ukraine. What this means is that essentially the Ukrainians are fighting in their own defense. Right? That's always been one of the crit cri uh, criticisms of the non-interventionists. Well, you know, our allies won't fight. They won't fight to defend themselves. Why do we always have to fight to defend them? The Ukrainians are. They're fighting to defend themselves against Russian aggression. They're fighting very effectively. All they're asking for us, from us is guns and money and support. And we're providing that. And that's one of the ways in which an alliance can work. The other aspect of alliances is that it allows for the United States, it can allow for the United States to have a more open trading system in which the U.S. will benefit economically without having to worry about our goods falling into the hands of our enemies, right? So one of the big issues that we've had with trade with China is that China is essentially stealing our intellectual property that China is, in many ways, trying to benefit asymmetrically, and that China is engaging in behavior that will try to capture U.S. firms and turn them into clients and agents of the Chinese state. This is not really a tolerable situation for the United States in the long term. Okay? China is our closest thing to a peer competitor. And if they're going to be competing with us, we should not be giving them the money that allows them to do that. However, the U.S. also benefits handsomely from free trade. 
This is just an undeniable economic fact. Those benefits are not equally distributed around the country, but that is something that is best fixed by policies at home rather than retrenchment abroad. You're not actually going to be able to bring back a lot of those manufacturing jobs, despite what politicians might tell you. Detroit isn't going to be making cars the same way that it used to. A lot of that heavy manufacturing is just not going to come back to the United States. It's not cost effective. That doesn't mean that there can't be new industries and new job creation and new growth in a lot of those areas. It doesn't mean that there can't be economic revitalization in the Rust Belt, and there should be. And we have not done sufficient work to make that happen, and there, there hasn't been sufficient policy focus on that. But it's not going to come through bringing back the 1950s. They're not coming back in terms of manufacturing and economics. Okay? But what we can have is a situation where we are trading with allies, where if people are benefiting from free trade with the United States, they are at least allies of the United States and not adversaries. So our alliance, our security alliance, can also be backed up by free trade agreements. And I would suggest the eventual development of sort of a democratic free trade zone. So the countries that are democratic, that have norms and values that are the same as ours, we can openly trade with them. And this is good not only in terms of, of economically for the United States, but also is good for security in the long run. It also incentivizes countries to sort of change their behavior. And for countries that want to be closer allies with the United States, it says, well, the way to get in closest, we can provide security relationships. We can have these, these security ties and security relationships with, with allies that share our interests. But for the full benefits, it should be a combination of values and interests. Allies, in short, make the cost of great power competition lower for the great power in question. The more allies you have, the more countries who are working with you on a given policy goal, the more allies you have, the less expensive, the more you can sort of divide, uh, have a division of labor. That is extremely beneficial in terms of extending the power and the influence of a country. And alliances provide a certain amount of resiliency to a great power coalition. If you have a number of allies working together, you're much more likely to have a coalition that has a chance of lasting because allies feel like they have a stake in that relationship. So this doesn't mean that the United States should sort of build down its military and you know, just rely on allies to do everything. The US is going to still have to be the military power. And even if that military power doesn't get used for every situation, having it there as a reserve is one of the things the US contributes to the alliance. The US is also contributing its economic might. And so it behooves us, if we're seeking allies, to be healthy from an economic perspective. That can be a very, very important aspect of the alliance. And so I think it is important to conceive of our grand strategy in these terms. What would we need to change to be more effective at pursuing alliances? The United States has a lot of these alliances, but how can we be more effective? Number one, the first thing is you can't leave your allies out to dry. Okay? And this is a challenge for democracy. If you're making an alliance with someone, it is in your interests and it is consistent with your values that you actually back up your ally. You don't want to be seen as somebody who abandons your allies. 
Unfortunately, in, in the Middle East, in parts of Central Asia, in Afghanistan, Iraq, and, and other areas, the U.S. has gotten a reputation for not being the best and most consistent ally. That's a bad reputation to have if you are relying on a grand strategy that wants you to bring your allies in and, and make them a significant force multiplier. Okay? Second is you need to understand your allies and what their values are, what their interests are, and know how far they can and can't go with you on any given policy priority. You're never going to be able to rely on allies to agree with you on everything. That's not practical and it's not feasible. And it doesn't make the alliance less important. So if your allies can't go with you on a specific thing, then you bring in another coalition. The alliance system needs to be flexible and flexible enough to account for the various different interests and sometimes even values of your allies. Right? So you need to have an, a good understanding of your allies, what makes them tick, what they can do, and what they can't do. And don't try to put them in a position where you're asking them to do something they can't do. Third thing is not all allies are created equal. Some allies will share our values and interests. Some, particularly in the Middle East, many of them will share our interests, but not necessarily our values. While it would be best if they aligned on both values and interests, again, you have to know how far and when and to what extent you can push allies and to what extent you can't. Understand their interests, understand their own realities and the flexibilities they're in. It's probably not going to be feasible for us to see democracy in Saudi Arabia anytime soon, for example. But can there be moves towards certain types of liberalization to bring them slightly more into accord with our values? That might be a possibility. Finally, think strategically about ways in which the alliance system can be expanded. Right? If a country doesn't share our values, doesn't share our interests, but there is a regime change in that country, are there ways to then open things up? so that they might be more open to or interested in an alliance in the future, right? The more allies you can have, the less work you have to do as a hegemon, right? And hegemonic powers should aspire to a certain kind of laziness. The less you actually have to employ your, your, your powers and demonstrate your strength, the better off you will be in the long run, as long as you don't get complacent. And that's the final point. Don't allow yourself to become complacent just because you have allies. Make sure that you are staying vigilant. Make sure that you are staying on top of things and that you are maintaining your position as the hegemonic power, not just in the region, but also globally, right? American hegemony, as I said at the outset, is good for us and it's good for the world. There's no re realistic alternative that would be better. And so preserving that is a good thing, is a morally good thing to do, and is also very much in our interests, because declining hegemons don't last very long. Alliances can strengthen and expand those coalitions. They can strengthen and expand the power of hegemons. And successful hegemons in the past have often relied on allies. You can think about the Romans at a certain time in their history when they're rising. They had a lot of allies and subsequently clients. Britain often worked through allies and through an alliance system in its position as a hegemon. And of course the United States in the Cold War relied on a system of alliances that was ultimately stronger than the system of alliances the Soviet Union had. There were other issues that came into play there as well, but alliances were certainly a key part of the story. So that's the strategy in a nutshell. Form strong alliances based on values and interests. Incentivize those alliances with security, ties, and economic cooperation. Remain flexible 
to have differing levels of commitment from differing allies on differing issues. And finally, don't get complacent. Remain vigilant, remain strong enough that people actually want to ally with you. And stay consistent. If your ally needs your assistance, make sure that you provide it, especially if providing it is in your long-term interest. Don't be a summer sunshine ally. All right, uh, that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. I know this is a little bit more in the weeds on the policy side and the foreign policy side. We will do some of these podcasts as well as the more podcasts that are focused on the day-to-day grind of politics and analyzing different races and so on and so forth. But we are hoping that you enjoyed this episode just as much as you might have enjoyed some of the episodes that focus more on the minutia of politics. Once again, you can find us on your favorite podcast provider, and we hope that you're looking at the other great content on American One as well. And so that is going to do it for this episode for Blind Politics. This is Dr. Nolte, signing off. <laughs>